Tonight's edition of Outbeat News in Depth is dedicated to the victims and families of those murdered and injured last Sunday at the Pulse Bar in Orlando, Florida. I have found Outbeat News in depth for you. What have you done today? Come make you feel proud. Good evening, happy Pride, and welcome to Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, it is indeed Pride Weekend here in the Bay Area. It's the 47th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, the 46th anniversary of the San Francisco Pride Celebration, and it is just one year to the day since the United States Supreme Court declared that same-sex couples have the right to marry the person they love. Tonight, we're celebrating this landmark civil rights decision with one of the men who led the way and whose name is on this case. Jim Obergefell is with us to share his story and to talk about his new book, Love Wins, The Lovers and Lawyers Who Fought the Landmark Case for Marriage Equality. We do indeed have much to celebrate this Pride weekend, and it's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, June 26th, 2016. I have found Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. Pride celebrations around the world remember fierce riots that took place on June 28, 1969 at the Stonewall Inn in New York, a night when LGBT people fought back and demanded equal rights. A march for equality that year is recognized as the turning point for the LGBT civil rights movement. But today, June 26, is arguably just as significant as a day as it's three times been the day when the United States Supreme Court issued landmark LGBT civil rights decisions beginning in 2003, when the sodomy laws in the United States were struck down. Here's Justice Kennedy with that decision. The opinion of the court number 02102, Lawrence against Texas, will be announced by Justice Kennedy. The question before the court is the validity of a Texas statute making it a crime for two persons of the same sex to engage in certain intimate sexual conduct. In Houston, Texas, police officers were dispatched to a private residence in response to a reported weapons disturbance. Uh, The the right of the police to enter does not seem to have been questioned at any stage in the case. Uh, The police entered the apartment where one of the petitioners, Joseph Geddes Lawrence, resided. The officers observed Lawrence and another man, Tyrone Gardner, engaging in a sexual act. Lawrence and Gardner were arrested, held in custody overnight, and charged under the Texas criminal statute. The statute punishes certain sexual conduct when committed by persons of the same sex. The petitioners were convicted, and they challenged their convictions under the due process and equal protection clauses of the Constitution. In today's opinion, we discuss some of the cases decided before Bowers. Uh, These precedents, including Griswold versus Connecticut, Eisenstadt uh, versus Baird, Roe versus Wade, and Carey versus Population Services, 
or limited the government's authority to enter the most private aspect of the lives of individuals. The holding of Bowers is, is inconsistent with the teaching of these cases. Two principal cases decided after Bowers cast its holding into even further doubt. Uh, these are Planned Parenthood versus Casey and Romer versus Evans. Romer versus Evans was a case decided under the Equal Protection Clause. There may be a tenable argument that the guarantee of equal protection represent, renders the Texas statute unconstitutional, but it is our view uh, that the instant case requires us to address whether Bowers itself has continuing validity. We conclude the rationale of Bowers does not withstand careful analysis. Bowers was not correct when it was decided, and it is not correct today. It ought not to remain binding precedent. Bowers versus Hardwick should be and now is overruled. The present case does not involve minors. It does not involve persons who might be injured or coerced or who are situated in relationships where consent might not easily be refused. It does not involve public conduct or prostitution. It does not involve whether the government must give formal recognition to any relationship that homosexual persons seek to enter. The case does involve two adults who, with full and mutual consent from each other, engage in sexual practices common to a homosexual lifestyle. The petitioners are entitled to respect for their private lives. The state cannot demean their existence or control their destiny by making their private sexual conduct a crime. Their right to liberty under the Due Process Clause gives them the full right to engage in their conduct without intervention of the government. It is the promise of the Constitution that there is a realm of personal liberty which the government may not enter. And then 10 years later, on June 26, 2013, the United States Supreme Court struck down California's Proposition 8 and key components of the Federal Defense of Marriage Act. Here is CNN that morning. DOMA is gone. This is a major, broadly written opinion which strikes down the law on the ground that it discriminates against gay people. This isn't a decision about states' rights. This isn't a narrowly written decision. This is a decision that says the federal government, by passing DOMA, demeans those persons who are in a lawful same-sex marriage. That's, the, uh, that, that's a quote from the opinion. This uh, opinion says that the federal government cannot discriminate against people who have valid uh, same-sex marriages. They are entitled to file joint tax, federal tax returns. They are entitled to Social Security survivor's benefits. They are entitled to be informed when their spouses are killed in action. This is a decision that says gay people have equal rights. And here's Paul Katami, one of the plaintiffs in the Prop 8 case, speaking from the steps of the U.S. Supreme Court. Prop 8 did one thing. It really helped us turn anger into action. It led to the foundation, the, equal, the American Foundation for Equal Rights. It led to this case and to today's victory as well. And we stand on the shoulders of so many people that came before us, people that risked their lives to stand up and be who they are. They gave us the legs to stand up on today. They gave us the momentum to run with and the voice to speak loudly and say proudly that we are gay, we are American, and we will not be treated like second-class citizens. So, although we celebrate today, although we celebrate today, we work to make sure that everyone like Jeff and I and Chris and Sandy, we just want to get married because it's the natural next step in our relationship. We want to join the institution of marriage, not 
to take anything away, but to strengthen it and to live up to its ideals. So today is a good day. It's the day I finally get to look at the man that I love and finally say, will you please marry me? <laughs>
a time when gay men lived in fear of being arrested or losing their jobs. Little did Jim or John know that the love they shared for each other would become the focus of the greatest LGBT civil rights decision of our time. One year ago today, the United States Supreme Court announced their decision in Obergefell v. Hodges. And today, same-sex couples who love each other just like Jim and John can now marry in every state. But it didn't happen overnight, and it wasn't exactly the question of being able to marry the person you love that brought this case to the Supreme Court. Here to tell us more about their story and his new book, Love Wins, The Lovers and Lawyers Who Fought the Landmark Case for Marriage Equality, is Jim Obergefell. Jim, happy Pride, and welcome to Outbeat Radio. Thanks, Greg. Happy Pride to you as well, and happy to be on the show. Well, we're really thrilled to have you with us to celebrate this very special day. So let's begin 20 years ago. It was 1992. You met a wonderful man named John Arthur. Tell us about how you met and a little bit about him. Yeah, actually, and December 31st, 1992 was the third time we met. And we consider that, we always consider that our anniversary because that was when we became a couple. Um, We met because of a mutual friend. One of John's fraternity brothers from university time was one of my friends. And we met the first two times. I went with this mutual friend to a bar near the university where we all attended and met John. Nothing happened was back at that same bar with that same mutual friend a few months later, met John a second time, nothing happened. And then during the holidays, um, by that time, Kevin was one of John's housemates and John was throwing a New Year's Eve party. So Kevin invited me to the New Year's Eve party and I never left. It was destiny. It certainly felt like it. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Well, early in the book, you tell a story about a set of rings that you bought, those, those first rings and how important they were. Talk about that. Yeah, well, rings for us were something really from the almost the very start of our relationship. At seven weeks, um, I was at a conference, and John came up to visit to Columbus, Ohio, and he surprised me with the gift of a diamond ring. And he already had a diamond ring, and my ring, well, the ring that he gave me was different. And so from that moment on, we always talked about how the things were the same, but different. So we had those rings on our seventh anniversary. We had different rings made, which again, were the same, but different. On our 14th anniversary, we had rings made, which were the same, but different. And then when it came to marriage, um, we needed to use something that was just relatively simple and easy and lightweight for John. And we had, or I had picked up a couple silver rings in a shop a few years before, and we used those for the wedding. Hmm. But 20 years ago now, in the early stages of your relationship, was marriage even a part of the conversation at that point? Oh, no, not at all. Um, Definitely not 20 years ago. Over time, within the first few years of our relationship, it started coming up in conversation And I really think the first time it came up was when Hawaii flirted with marriage equality in the early to mid-90s. And John's stepmother at the time said, well, if they pass it and you can get married, I'm taking the whole family so that you can. But for us, you know, we talked about marriage, but we wanted, always wanted it to be more than something symbolic. We wanted it to actually carry legal weight. So that was why we never really pursued it, because we knew living in Ohio and at the federal level, it really wouldn't mean anything. And that was important to us. 
Right, right. And then the years went by and John got sick. Tell us what happened. Correct. In early 2011, I noticed when he was walking, his gait sounded different. His left foot started slapping. So we thought it was a sprained ankle, pulled muscle, whatever, but it didn't go away. So he finally started seeing our family doctor, which then turned into several neurologist visits and lots of tests. And one neurologist diagnosed him with ALS. A second neurologist concurred. A third neurologist concurred. So he was diagnosed with ALS, officially diagnosed in early June of 2011. And it really turned our world upside down because suddenly here was this unexpected death sentence. I mean, the regular, the expected life after diagnosis is two to five years. Wow. I can't even imagine how scary that must have been. And for all intents and purposes, you two were living together as a married couple, but without all of the protections, without any of the protections uh, that you mentioned earlier. So as you began to think about those next two to five years, what steps did you take to protect yourselves? Right. This was one of the things John really impressed his neurologist. Um, His neurologist, Dr. Quinlan said over and over, I wish more of my patients were like you and actually thought ahead and did what you could to be ready and to just deal with it. Because as soon as, as soon as the diagnosis came up, we were living in a two level condo. The building itself wasn't incredibly handicap friendly. So we immediately started looking for a new place to live. And we found a new condo, one level, which was fully handicap accessible. So we did that. And when we bought that, this was all John's idea. He said, you know, Jim, when we buy this new condo, it's going to be only in your name. My name can't be on it. I don't want there to be any possible issues for you or anything. So he thought about things like that. And when we bought that condo, you know, we had grab bars and things installed. But we also updated our wills. We did all of those necessary powers of attorney. So we did all of those legal things which cost money, which a married couple wouldn't have to do. Right. Right. Well, I can understand that entirely because uh, my now husband and I had to do the same thing. We were married in 2006 and we went through extraordinary measures, you know, have a very, very thick binder with all of those extra things that you have to do when you can't get married. Right. Um, but but good for both of you for thinking about that. Uh, but it must have been really, really tough. So a couple years later, June 2013, the Defense of Marriage Act falls but yeah. you still can't get married in Ohio. I know it was a huge day here for us in California, that's for sure. So, But talk about that day and its significance for you two. Yeah, that, that was a very important day. By that point, John was completely bedridden. He was in at-home hospice care, so I was his primary caregiver 24 hours a day other than about five hours a week when hospice would visit. So we were watching the news hoping, waiting for news on the Windsor case. And when that decision was released, I just leaned over, hugged and kissed John and said, let's get married. And we decided here was our chance, our opportunity to actually make our promises and commitments to each other, public and legal, and at least have our federal government acknowledge us and say we exist. Now, 
we lived in Ohio that had passed a state constitutional amendment banning same-sex marriage in 2004, so we knew Ohio wasn't going to recognize it. But, you know, that was one of those kind of abstract concepts. We knew it wouldn't, Ohio wouldn't recognize it. We knew the federal government would. We wanted to get married. But, like, the nitty-gritty, a lot of the details around that state ban, we didn't really grasp it all or, or understand it until a few days later. Sure. I mean, naturally, most people don't have to think about those things. Uh, right. They just think about being able to get married. So talk about your decision to travel to Maryland. Right. So um, John said, okay, let's get married. And then the challenge was figuring out, well, where do we go and how do we get John there? And initially we thought about New York because it was closest in distance. But the thought of putting John in the back of an ambulance for hundreds and hundreds of miles, it just wasn't something I was willing to do because I knew it would be incredibly painful for him. And he couldn't fly commercially. So that meant we would have to charter a medical jet. And the other challenge about New York, as well as almost all of the other states, was that they require both people to appear in person to apply for the marriage license. Uh. Once, once I did started doing my research on all the, the places we could possibly go, I discovered in Maryland that both people are not required to appear in person. One of the two is able to appear and apply in person for the marriage license. So that meant I could go up early, get the license, come back, we would wait the required waiting period, and then we could go to... Um, Baltimore, Washington International Airport to get married. Interesting, interesting. So bring us to that day. Uh, you write a lot about the significance of saying, for you, of saying, I thee wed. I think some people take kind of those words for granted. Uh, give us a little sense about the significance of those words for the two of you. Yeah, I, I have to agree with you, Greg. I think a lot of people do take it for granted, granted and I think some people just, you know, they're so used to it being something they can do, and it's always been their right, always the ability, that when you can't, they, they can't really grasp what it means when you can't do it. And we couldn't for years. And that day to say, I do, I be wed, and to commit to John publicly and legally, the same way I had committed to him personally in our, in our 20 years together, it was the happiest moment of my life. And we both felt different. You know, people always say, well, it's just a piece of paper. Well, it is just a piece of paper, but it is so much greater than a piece of paper. We felt more complete. We felt better about ourselves, about our relationship, and we felt more equal. I All I can say is it was the happiest moment of my life and a beautiful beautiful moment to be able to say I do to the man I loved. Mm. I can connect with that. I, I, I totally get it. Totally get it. Beautifully said. Well, then you returned to Ohio and, and you alluded to not knowing some of the details about how Ohio's marriage ban would impact, you know, your federal recognition and marriage in, in Maryland. You come home and then you discover that there's going to be some problems. Uh, talk about some of the things you discovered in those realizations. Right. Well, the the big thing was, you know, when we got married, we had no plans to do anything. We simply wanted to get married and live out John's remaining days as husband and husband. That was all we wanted. We came home. Well, we got married on Thursday. We got home that day. And that weekend, our local newspaper ran a story about us going to Maryland. 
and friends of ours were at a party on Saturday, and the story had come out online. And they ran into a friend of theirs who is a civil rights attorney. He's been a civil rights attorney for almost 40 years in Cincinnati. And our story came up in conversation. And the civil rights attorney said, well, do you think John and Jim might be willing to talk to me? I There's something, they don't, they don't really understand some problems they're going to have. And I, I would like to talk to them if they're open to it. So our friends got in touch and John and I talked about it and said, sure, why not? So... We got married on Thursday. On Tuesday, Al Gerhardstein, this um, civil rights attorney, came to our place, and he did one thing that really changed the course of our lives and my life and helped, you know, put me in the place where I am currently. And that was, he simply pulled out a blank Ohio death certificate. He said, now, guys, I'm sure you haven't thought about this because who thinks about a death certificate when you've just gotten married? But do you understand that when John dies... Ohio will say he's unmarried, and Jim, your name won't be there as his surviving spouse. John's last record as a person, his last official record as a person, will be incorrect. Mm. Well, it broke our hearts, and it made us mad. And that was such, you know, such a specific situation, such a specific detail, such a specific item around that state constitutional amendment that we hadn't thought of. Yeah, I don't think most people would have. I mean, it wouldn't no. be, why, why would anybody think about it at that point? Exactly right. So that was, that was the turning point. And John and I talked about it, and we realized, for us, it was important to, to live up to our commitments to each other. We, our hearts broke being told that. And we realized nobody should be told that. No one should experience that. So we decided... Let's file suit. Wow. Well, let's talk about the book a little bit and, and the journey that happened in that suit, because uh, it's really a wonderful story about people. Uh, of course, that's, that's what all of these cases are about, are the people. Uh, but you include the, really the story about not only uh, the two of you, but also the attorneys that were involved and the, and the motivation and the love that they brought to this um, the book is called Love Wins, by the way, The Lovers and Lawyers Who Fought the Landmark Case for Marriage Equality. Talk a little bit about Algar Hartstein and where his motivation came from to take this case on. Well, the motivation to take the case on really was rooted initially from just our love for each other and our need to fight for each other and and protect each other. And as time went by, you know, when John died, that's when I was able to start thinking a little bit more broadly and thinking a little bit more outside of just the two of us. Because, you know, when we first filed, I, I couldn't think bigger picture. I couldn't think future because that all meant thinking about John's death. That all meant thinking about my life without John. And I wasn't willing to do it. But when he did, when he died and the case continued, the, the state of Ohio appealed, we went to the appeals court, it became this much bigger picture, much bigger fight for me. And I discovered that being involved in something that was bigger than I am, more important than I am, really was important to me. Mm -hmm. And even when we lost at the appeals court, I simply couldn't stop. I, there was no way I could say, you know what, we lost this one. I just want to go back to my, my old life, my quiet life. I simply couldn't do it. And in the book, what we really wanted to do, and a major goal of the book was to make sure that people understand and realize that it wasn't just about John and me. I felt 
a fair amount of guilt that the case was named Obergefell v. Hodges because it wasn't just us. There were more than 30 other plaintiffs, you know, another widower, parents, couples, children, and they all were fighting for the same things we were, and that was equal justice under law and to be treated fairly and the same as any other American. So the goal for the book from the start was we have to tell the bigger story, and that included other plaintiffs, and that had to include Al because he is such a big part of this story. Sure, sure. So in that first conversation, you know, as you looked ahead to where this case could go, did it ever occur to you that this would be the case that would break the equality embargo? (laughs) Uh, No, not really. I mean, I think for both John and me, those high school government classes, you know, a little bit of memory from that percolated in the back of our minds that, you know, we're filing in federal court, this could end up in the Supreme Court, but neither one of us really thought that much about that. And again, I know for me, it was, that was future, and I just could not think future. Hmm. Well, you know, there's a lot of very interesting bits of history uh, in the book as well, the things that were going on at the time. And of course, the LGBT civil rights movement and the marriage movement in general was was just moving at, at lightning pace, at least it seemed like that. And I think it's ironic that, you know, a decade after it was passed, issue three, which sounds very similar to what's going on in North Carolina and Mississippi today, uh, was repealed in the same election that the ban on marriage equality was written into Ohio's Constitution. Right. 2004 was, for the gay community in Cincinnati, a good year, bad year type of thing. So issue three, which you mentioned, that happened in the early to mid-90s in Cincinnati, In the early 90s, Cincinnati City Council passed a human rights ordinance, which included protections for the LGBT community. And a backlash ensued within the community. And that resulted in a ballot issue going up for the vote by citizens of Cincinnati to change the city charter to say that no laws could be passed to protect the LGBT community. And for years, we were considered the town without pity. We were considered the most gay, unfriendly city in the country. Mm. And it was a very dark time, you know, to to realize that your neighbors, your fellow Cincinnatians, voted to prevent any protections ever being put in place for you. That was It was a very dark time, a very tough time. But as happens in so many ways in our country as we move forward, citizens, businesses started to realize just what damage this was causing and how wrong this law was. So there was an effort in starting in the early 2000s to repeal it. And it went up for popular vote by the citizens of Cincinnati and they repealed it. And that was that was a joyful day tempered by the passage of the state constitutional ban on same-sex marriage. And Al was right at the heart of taking issue three on. He was. He took that to federal court. He won. It went to the appeals court. He lost. He filed cert with the Supreme Court. Supreme Court kicked it back to the appeals court. It ended up staying in place. So for Al, it was, it was, it was a devastating loss for him um, as a civil rights attorney. Mm-hmm. But clearly, uh, it sounds like from reading about that story that that really fueled him too 
in this case and gave him a lot of experience that he needed to be able to take these issues on. Absolutely. I, I strongly believe that that experience, his, his fight against issue three in Cincinnati, gave him a sense of drive on our case and the birth certificate case that he, he started in Cincinnati as well that became part of the consolidated case. Very much. It was, it was his chance to, I guess, in some ways, write, write what he felt were some wrongs that occurred. Mm-hmm. Will you talk about that first appearance in court and having to testify, you know, knowing about what the future was going to be with John as he was getting ready to pass, literally. That must have been just an emotionally horrific day. Talk about some of those challenges. How did you get through it? I'm not really sure, Greg. That's a great question. Um, all, all I know is I, I guess all I can say is I steeled myself to, to make it through my statement. I had written it. I had a copy of it because I really just had to focus on the words and just try to get it out. But it was it was vitally important to me to speak directly to the judge and express and explain what John meant to me, what our marriage meant to us. And I got through it. I give credit to the fact that John's Aunt Paulette, who married us, and so many of our family and friends were in the courtroom. And I had this sense of love and support there to help me get through. Yeah, that must have been just absolutely critical. It was. Yeah, yeah. So you write about the attorney representing the state. Uh, Doesn't sound like she really believed in what she was defending. Um, She believed it from the aspect of, this is my job, and I am am here to defend the laws of the state of Ohio. So from a professional perspective, she absolutely did her best and did what she needed to do as, as an assistant attorney general. Sitting in the courtroom, I found myself wondering what her personal feelings were about about same-sex marriage, about marriage equality. And as you say, it turns out they didn't necessarily jive with what she had to do professionally. I guess I have to admire her for standing up for her professional responsibilities, her sworn responsibilities. Uh, you know, as I think about that and the Kim Davises of the world, there are public servants out there who will put their own personal beliefs and needs above their professional public duties. Correct. I, I absolutely, she has my respect for do, for doing that as well, and you know it. It felt good to to discover that, you know, not every state employee was against our equality mm-hmm. hmm. on a personal level. Yeah, I, I guess I hadn't really thought that much about that even as a possibility because it seems so personal uh, when you hear these folks talk. So you won the case, uh, but then the state appealed. What happened? Correct. So we won the case, and the judge issued a temporary restraining order that said Ohio had to complete John's test certificate correctly. So it wasn't until after John died and the judge made that temporary restraining order permanent, I guess it was an injunction, that the state of Ohio appealed. And at that point, our case was consolidated with five other cases, the birth certificate case from Ohio, and then cases from Kentucky, um, Michigan, and Tennessee. And we were all consolidated into one case, and we went to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Wow. 
And in the book, you write about how all of the plaintiffs came together with the attorneys and really became very close and very much a family. Now the family was growing as you move closer to the Supreme Court. Talk about those relationships and how they developed. Oh, it was fantastic. And, you know, for me, it's really focused on the plaintiffs in the birth certificate case around Cincinnati and a couple from Kentucky. A lot of it had to do with distance. And, you know, the birth certificate case in Cincinnati, I went to all of their hearings. So I got to know, I got to know Kelly and Kelly, Pam and Nicole, Joe and Rob, who live in Manhattan, but adopted in Ohio. So I got to know them really well because I was seeing them, I won't say on an incredibly regular basis, but fairly regularly. And they were close in distance, but they also had Al as their attorney. So there was that connection as well. Mm -hmm. And I got to know some of the other plaintiffs, um, Greg and Michael in Louisville, as well as others. And it was just this, this feeling of family of we're all going through this together. We're all fighting for things that are important to us, things that are important to our family, things that are important to any American who really believes in equality. So we quickly did become a family. And I think my favorite memory is in early January of last year, when we were waiting to hear if the Supreme Court was going to accept the cases we were all texting on Facebook together, emailing back and forth, waiting for news. And in that moment, I absolutely loved technology because even though we were spread around the country, around you know four, four or five states, right. we were all together and experiencing it at once. And I just, I loved that. It was a really nice way to, to get that news. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you you have some pictures in the book uh, that I think are really wonderful. It gives us a sense of, of certainly who you and John are uh, and the other people involved. And, and again, I think we forget that in these very complicated legal battles, there are real people involved. Um, and I think ultimately that's what helps us win, uh, is Ab- are the people. Absolutely. And, you know, I one of the things I, I hear over and over and over and – it comes primarily from lawyers or law students. They say that same thing, Greg. They're like, you know, we oftentimes forget that at the heart of every case is a person or people. And they love this case because the stories at the heart of it are everyone's stories. So it's I, I found that incredibly meaningful to me that people recognize that. And, and I, I know I'm thanked all the time by people and I'm certain the other plaintiffs are, we're thanked for sharing our stories and for giving a, giving a real life face to this issue. So did you anticipate the sixth circuits decision? No. Um, but I'll be honest from, for me, from the whole, the whole entire time from the very first filing to the Supreme court, I wouldn't allow myself to consider the possibility of losing because it was too, it was too painful. Sure. What I, what I was doing, what we were fighting for was too vital, too important to think that any court could say, no, you really don't matter. Well, particularly at that time, because there was this huge momentum, you know, going across the country where court after court after court was overturning these bans and declaring the right for uh, same-sex couples to marry. 
In this case, there was one judge who dissented. Uh, the case lost by a two-to-one vote. And you write about the blistering comments made by that dissenting judge. What did she have to say? Well, her she really took the other two judges to task for their opinion that, well, let's just wait and see. And who should decide this? A lot of a lot of the majority opinion talked about how, well, you know, this shouldn't be decided by um, judges. This should be decided by the people. And she, Judge Daughtry took great exception to that and really argued that no, that's this this argument about who should decide constitutional rights. Is it a court? Is it the people? She's like, that is irrelevant. The whole point, the way our country was set up was for the justice system to make sure rights are not being abridged. So she really um, argued about that. And I I think my favorite part um, at the very end of her her dissent, and I'll read this because I I really like it. Sure. I, I solemnly swore to administer justice without respect to persons, to do equal right to the poor and to the rich and to faithfully and impartially discharge and perform all the duties incumbent upon me under the Constitution and laws of the United States. If we in the judiciary do not have the authority and indeed the responsibility to right fundamental wrongs left excused by a majority of the electorate, our whole intricate constitutional system of checks and balances, as well as the oath to which we swore, prove to be nothing but shams. Wow. Yeah. That's um, a very powerful statement. It really is. And for me, that's where it all came down to. You know, she brought it personally as well. She talked about the oath she swore, the oath other judges swore, and said, if we're not doing our job, if we're not protecting the rights of all Americans, we are nothing but a sham. And I just thought that was a very powerful way to end her dissent. And you have to wonder about how much of an influence maybe that statement had on some of the Supreme Court justices uh, in, in causing them to maybe think twice. It's possible. It, yeah. It's hard to say. And I remember when that decision came out, and it seemed like such a blow. Uh, you know, looking back on it, it almost seems like a gift, because that really is what I think caused the Supreme Court to have to step in at that point and say, okay, we, we need to intervene now. Uh, there seemed to be some delay or some hesitation on their part because all of the, to that date, all the other circuit courts were affirming marriage equality. Do you see it that same way? I do. In fact, when we lost, it was devastating. It was, it was a hurtful decision. It was painful. But I really did cling to the thought that this could be the silver lining. The silver lining could be that with this dissenting opinion, will now go to the Supreme Court. Because as you say, every single other decision by federal courts, by appeals courts, had been on the side of marriage equality. Mm-hmm. So I really clung to the idea, well, because of this decision, maybe now the Supreme Court will take it up and rule once and for all. Right, right. Well, as you mentioned, there were a lot of cases that came together that were all consolidated uh, into the one marriage case. How did it come about that your names were the ones that were chosen as the lead plaintiffs? <laughs> well, um, it's funny. People ask that all the time. And I think the perception for a lot of people is that there's some really mystical or really important or really complicated way that that happens. 
and it isn't at all. The Supreme Court's um, tradition is that when they have consolidated cases, they name the consolidated case based on the lowest case number of those cases. So we had the lowest case number. Interesting. A luck of the draw. Pretty much. Well, I remember, you know, going back when California's Supreme Court ruled that California state law was unconstitutional regarding same-sex couples' ability to marry. And I just happened to be in Washington, D.C. At, at that time when I knew the decision was coming out. And, you know, I went up to the Supreme Court and sat on the steps and waited for the, the news. It just was a very moving experience to be there and to experience um, some justice that impacted me personally. Uh, it must have been just incredible, though, for you to know that you were going to be going to the Supreme Court and really potentially changing the entire experience for LGBT folks across the country. What was it like when you heard the news that they were going to take the case? It gave me an, an incredible sense of hope and a bit more comfort thinking that, okay, John might truly be able to rest in peace knowing that our marriage exists. So it was hope and comfort and also <laughs> a fair amount of nerves. <laughs> Boy, I bet. I, I mean, I, it's hard for me to even conceptualize that. But, but you know, you were going to be at the center of the biggest case, the biggest landmark decision to impact LGBT people in our lifetime. Yeah, and I'm still, I think, coming to grips with that. Um, people tell me all the time, you know, you're you're like Rosa Parks. You're this is like Roe v. Wade or Brown versus the Board of Education. And uh, on an intellectual level, I understand that. But emotionally, it's still sinking in. I mean, honestly, I still have to pinch myself at times or remind myself that when I see Obergefell v. Hodges or hear Obergefell v. Hodges, they're talking about me. Yeah. Yes, they are. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, you know, it's it's been incredibly nice of people to, to tell me, you know, call me a hero, call me a pioneer, call me brave. I don't honestly feel like that in any way, shape or form. I just feel like someone who loved his husband and lived up to his promises. And by virtue of that helped make our country a better place. Helped, I, by virtue of that, I became part of something bigger, something more important. And it's really humbling for me to, to realize that but it still doesn't completely feel real. Sure. Well, you got to be in the courtroom, obviously, when the arguments were being made, uh, and the Supreme Court is really a collection of very interesting characters. What were some of the most significant moments that you witnessed that you still think about? Well, for me, when I think about that day, it really, the, the, the most meaningful most important memory for me has nothing to do with the proceedings. You know, sitting there listening to the questioning, the arguments, I took notes, I was writing down things that people were saying, but I wasn't I, I wasn't letting myself read it read into anything. I wasn't trying to make assumptions or really understand what was going on. I think taking notes was just my way of keeping my keeping my sanity. For me, the most meaningful thing that happened was before court started. Um, Aunt Paulette, who married John and me, she was with me in the courtroom, and we were sitting out in the public seats. I was not with the other plaintiffs. 
the other um, the court set aside seats for the plaintiffs, but we had to choose whether we wanted to be in the in for the oral arguments for the right to marry or for the oral oral arguments for the right to recognition. We could not be there for both. Okay. So I I ended up being in the public line. So I was in the courtroom for for the entire two and a half hour session. I heard all arguments. So where I was sitting with Aunt Paulette, people didn't know who I was. And once that came out, and I don't even remember how that happened, um, the gentleman sitting next to me said, you know, Jim, I have to tell you, your story, your and John's story really touched someone this morning. I have a twin brother who's a Roman Catholic priest, and he called me this morning and said, you know, Rob, I have to tell you, I read about the named plaintiffs in this case, and their story, I mean, this it really affected me, really touched me. And a little bit later, Rob was saying that same thing to Aunt Paulette, but he said that our story affected two people. And I thought, well, two people, who's the second person? And he turned to me, said, I'm an evangelical Republican, and he shook my hand and thanked me. And for me, that was, that was I think, the, the moment things really came crashing down and in such an obvious and meaningful interaction that told me, yeah, our story did resonate with people. Our story, all of us telling our stories can change hearts and minds. I never would have expected that. And that's the moment I will never forget in that courtroom. I bet not. But you really echo what, you know, people like Harvey Milk and Judy Shepard have said for years and years and years is that that is the way we're going to change minds and hearts in this country is by telling our stories. Exactly. It's it's only by telling stories and, and letting people get to know us that we change what is a perception, an abstract idea, which isn't always positive. We That's the only way we can change it into reality and something that's positive. So we absolutely have to tell our stories. That's how we change minds. That's how we change hearts. Fantastic. So then you had to wait again. Uh, and those months must have seemed like years. At the end of the day, when you walked out of that courtroom, what was your sense about how the justices were going to vote? Did you have a good idea that it was going to go in your favor? Uh, well, in my you know completely not legal <laughs> expertise, <laughs> not SCOTUS expertise or anything, I walked out feeling optimistic. I don't know how much of that was just my my natural optimism. I don't know how much of that was, in some ways, me channeling John, because he was always very optimistic, no matter what happened. But I did. I, wa- I walked out feeling, feeling positive. Like you've got this. I don't know if I necessarily would have said, I got this, but I probably felt... Yeah, I think I got this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, and so the decision comes down on June 26th, which ends up being, for the LGBT civil rights movement, a momentous day. I have my own suspicions about the court picking that day because of that. Some major decisions have been announced on that same day, right? Uh, as we've talked about earlier in the show. So take us back to that morning. Uh, what was it like for you to be on those steps? Or you probably weren't in the, on the steps. Where were you that morning? Well, I was in line on the sidewalk um, before they handed out tickets and let everyone into the courthouse. So just even being out on the st- out on the sidewalk that morning, it felt different. It felt looser because that was the fifth day I had been at the Supreme Court waiting for a decision. So mm-hmm. I'd been there and saw a lot of the same people and 
that morning, it just felt different. And I think that goes to what you said, you know, when you said you had your suspicion about Friday, June 26th. Right. Most of us thought it would come out on Monday, June 29th. But when they added Friday, June 26th as a decision day, that's when we all started to think, huh, that can't just be coincidence. Right. So I think that was a big part of why the mood seemed happier, seemed lighter that morning on, on the sidewalk. So once we got into the, into the courthouse and we were seated in the courtroom, again, that feeling of something good is probably coming. I, it was hard to shake. So court started and the chief justice said, Justice Kennedy will read the first decision. And they read our case number. And I'd only just finally memorized the case number the day before. And I just startled in my seat. And I was sitting between two friends and I grabbed their hands. And Justice Kennedy started to read his decision. And my immediate thought was, we won. Wow. He continued to read. And I thought, well, I think we did. And once it finally sunk in that, yes, we truly did win, I just burst into tears. And I wasn't the only one. You could see it and hear it around the courtroom. Just tears of, of joy. Oh, I think those tears were flowing nationwide. Yeah, I think they were too. That was It was a pretty incredible day. And, and then, you know, it, I have to imagine that time must have just stood still because so much happened. Out on the steps of the Supreme Court, you got a call from the president. Yes. So after leaving the courthouse, um, Al was there, Al Gerhardstein, um, Mary and Douglas, who argued both the two questions at the court were there. Some of the other plaintiffs were there. And Al and I had the chance to lead the group through the crowd on, on the plaza. And I mean, the electric feeling of joy on the plaza was unbelievable. And then, you know, got to speak to the press. And then I was handed a phone that said, you have a caller. And it was the president. Well, we have the audio of the call from that day. Here's President Obama. Yes, it is, Mr. President. Chairman, the, uh, I, I figured when I saw you that we were going to be hoping for some good news, and we did. I well, just want to say congratulations. Thank you so much, uh, sir. I think it was your oh, wishes. <laughs> you know, your, your, uh, your leadership on this you know, has uh, changed, changed the country. I... I really appreciate that, Mr. President. It's really been an honor for me to be involved in this fight and to have been able to, you know, fight for my marriage and live up to my commitments to my husband. So I appreciate, I appreciate everything you've done for the LGBT community, and it's really an honor to, to have become part of that fight. Well, the, uh, I'm really proud of you, and, uh, uh, yeah, just, uh, just know that not only have you been a great example for people, but uh, you're also going to you know, uh, bring about a lasting change in this country. And it's, uh, it's pretty rare when that happens. So uh, I, I couldn't be pr- uh, prouder of you and, uh, and your husband. But, uh, God bless you. Thank, thank you, sir. That means an incredible amount to me. And yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right. Take care. Thanks for the call, Mr. President. Yeah, Bye. To get a call from the President of the United States and for him to say thank you for helping make our country a better place, I mean, that's something all you can do is dream of experiencing, and it really happened.
Well, particularly from a president who is so amazing and has done so much for our community, uh, someone who really understands what equality is, I just cannot imagine how that must have felt. It, it, it was incredible. And you're right. He, president Obama has done so much for this country in so many ways, and especially for the LGBTQ community. He has been such an advocate and a supporter and a protector of us and our rights. We owe him an enormous amount of gratitude for everything he's done. For sure. So a year's gone by. It's hard to believe that. Um, in some ways, it seems like it was such a long time ago, and yet it seems like yesterday. Um, you have a wonderful book, Love Wins, The Lovers and Lawyers Who Fought the Landmark Case for Marriage Equality. What are you hoping readers get aside from the historical context of what happened? Well, I, I hope people walk away from it with that great understanding that, you know, all of these cases, whenever we hear about a court case, a Supreme Court ruling, a landmark decision, that what it comes down to is the people at the heart of it. And I, I think the title is absolutely appropriate because this is a love story. It's John's and my love story. It's the love of Joe and Rob for their son, Cooper, Pam and Nicole for their sons, Graydon and Orion, and so many others. It's about love and it's about Al fighting to protect that love. So the story isn't, you know, it's it's about marriage equality, but at its heart it's about love and fighting for the person you love. And it really is a love story wrapped in a legal thriller. And I love that it's the bigger picture, not just me and John, because there's so much more to the story that that people really need to know. Well, I think you characterize it right. It, a legal thriller. I love that. Um, and fortunately, this one came out with a very positive end. That it did. Thankfully. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, the book is called Love Wins, The Lovers and Lawyers Who Fought the Landmark Case for Marriage Equality. It's available now and a wonderful read. We've been talking with the author and a truly devoted husband who had the courage to step up and help bring marriage equality to our country. Jim Obergefell, thank you so much for being with us. Happy Pride, and thanks for being on the show tonight. Thanks, Greg. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed this, and thanks for your time and for your kind words about me and the book. And that brings us to the end of our hour. My thanks again to Jim Obergefell for spending his Pride Sunday with us. I'll be back in July with Tanner White, a U.S. Marine and founder of a new organization called A Positive Tomorrow, and Jane Ward, a researcher and author of a new book called Not Gay. It's a book about straight men who have sex with other men. Tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on Radio 91. In the meantime, happy Pride, everyone, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. You can listen to past shows on demand on our website at outbeatnews.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for updates from Outbeat Radio News all week long.
You're listening to KRCB-FM, Windsor, Santa Rosa, Radio 91, online all the time at krcb.org. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Open Space District is next.